Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org Hello and welcome once again to Daily Daf Differently. It's Jeremy Kalmanowski and we are studying Shabbat, page 13, Daf Yud Gimel. The topic of the day is mostly with respect to what are called in Hebrew Har Chakot, distancing measures to prevent one from not only from sinning but even getting too close to the possibility of a sin. Uh, if you studied yesterday's page, you remember that we talked, for example, about not reading by lamplight on Shabbat lest you be uh, tempted to tilt the lamp to make it burn better, thus burning off more oil and violating Shabbat. Uh, now we're going to talk about a specific sort of harchaka, distances between a husband and wife when they should not be having sex. You probably know that in classical Judaism, from the Torah up to the modern day, there is a prohibition on a menstruating woman from having sex uh, until she immerses in the mikvah the way the classical Torah prohibition is that from the beginning of her menstrual period for a minimum of seven days, that is uh, the, the time in which they expect bleeding to cease, um, she is forbidden from having sex by, by biblical command, and then she's supposed to immerse in the ritual bath. Now, actually, the Torah does not mention specifically this immersion. It mentions immersion for all other kinds of impurity that's given rise to some speculation on, among modern scholars that that for menstruation people didn't have to immerse, although I, I think that the simpler explanation is, as the rabbis have it, that it is just implicit, and you're supposed to infer it from all the other examples. So she's not supposed to uh, have sex for those seven days, according to biblical law. Rabbinic law has uh, has made it a little bit different. They have said that she's not supposed to have sex for seven so-called uh, white days or clean days, in which she is not, after bleeding has ceased, uh, and at the end of those days, she's supposed to go to the mikveh. So if we assume that she has a five-day period, then there's a seven-day waiting period and a 12-day abstinence period. So how should husbands and wives relate during the abstinence time? Uh, Judaism has instituted over the years all kinds of harchakot uh, to keep people from being tempted to violate. And that's a big part of classical Jewish observance and modern, uh, not modern Orthodox, but Orthodox observance in the modern era. In liberal communities, it is much less practiced, of course. We can say that, you know, some people will will argue, and plenty of my conservative rabbinic colleagues do argue, that this remains a, a really vital uh, mitzvah, certainly a Torah mitzvah, and we don't, we're not free to just omit these things. But people, you know, are fans of this mitzvah and, and say that it's, a, it, it's an intensification of one's relationship to sexuality and the healthy female body. Uh, and we should we should really you know encourage its observance. And uh, though some people will say we could dispense with the the quote unquote clean days or those extra post bleeding days, which is referred to the Bible practice. Um, other people will say that it is not a, a celebration of or a intensification of your awareness of the healthy female body. It's a stigmatization of the healthy female body. So in our world, uh, in my world, people both sometimes praise. I would say all in all, more often. Uh, do not praise 
this mitzvah as being as being a celebratory of women and, and their bodies. But in all events, our page regards it as taken for granted, and students of the Talmud for many, 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 many centuries up until now have regarded it as taken for granted, that it is important to set harchakot between husbands and wives um, in and around menstruation so that they're not tempted to violate. Well, how, how much harchaka is necessary? How much distancing? Can people eat together? Can they can eat together at the same table? Uh, contemporary Orthodox practice says they ought to make small distancing measures, like a little extra tablecloth or something like that, to distance between them. How about the question that the Talmud really concerns with, can they sleep together in the same bed? He in his clothes and she in her clothes. That's the question before us. Can they sleep together in the same bed? The uh, the page includes different views, but there's a number of interesting points of them that I want to bring out. The minority view is associated with a figure called Rabbi Padat, who says that uh, as long as the specific behaviors don't uh, bring people to actual sexual conduct, they shouldn't hug and kiss, they shouldn't caress, according to Rabbi Padat. Um, but other than that, uh, it is not a biblical prohibition, he says. I think we can assume that he thinks it's a rabbinic prohibition, or, or perhaps not even, for them to sleep in the same bed. The majority position on our page is from uh, Rav Yosef, who says it is not permissible for them to sleep in the same bed. The actual contemporary practice is, the people who observe this with the rigor that is done in, in many Orthodox communities, um, they do not sleep in the same bed. People will often have beds uh, that they... Um, can push apart like a not not a queen size bed, but a pair of uh, a pair of twin beds that they can push apart while the wife is menstruating. One thing that's interesting in this discussion is that when they describe the, this idea, this havamina, this possibility that, that the couple could sleep together in the same bed, and they say him in his clothes and her in her clothes, uh, the the implication, or even more than implication, the the basic assumption going on here is. As the Talmud says, now this will be different than the non-menstrual time because they will be dressed. At all other times, they should be sleeping naked. The expectation is that the couple will be sleeping the kirvat basar, that is to say, flesh to flesh, skin to skin. Uh, Rashi says, and this is this is part of Jewish law. There is no such thing as a sexless marriage, a sexless Jewish marriage. All marriages have to have have to have sexual conduct. Um, the the uh, the page takes up some other interesting questions about harfakot and brings the absolutely unbelievable story of the Babylonian Talmud, Talmudic sage, Ula, who it says that when he would come back to his house, he would kiss his sisters on their breasts. And then uh, the, the Talmud says, well, some people say their hands, which they also think is, is kind of crazy. But this is unbelievable to me that Ula would do this. And the commentators say, well, Ula was an extremely pious person, and he knew that he would nonetheless be not tempted. I find this half bizarre and half half horrifying. Speaking of horrifying, the, the Talmud tells a story, a well-known story, that is, is really, in, from this modern person's eyes, one of the, the less lovely pieces I've ever seen. There's a story of a rabbinic sage who dies young, and his poor widow comes around carrying his tefillin to the study house and says, can you possibly explain to me how my pious and wise sage husband died young? And Elijah the prophet Perhaps it's a person named Elijah, but I think the implication is that it is Elijah the prophet uh, asks her some questions about their behavior, and she relates that in those, quote-unquote, clean days, 
um, they would certainly never have sex, God forbid, but they would, in fact, sleep in the bed together naked. At which point Elijah says the memorable words, Baruch HaMakom Asher Harago, Blessed is God who killed him, who gave him what he deserved for flouting the strictness of the, of the rabbinic requirements regarding menstruation. On the bet side of the page, 13b, there's a, a new matter that's going to be taken up, going to occupy us for uh, the next several days about the disputes between Hillel and Shammai. I won't get into it now except to say that there, although the law generally follows Hillel, uh, there is a case where Shammai outvotes him on 18 occasions. And I won't get into the specifics there, but I will tell you that there is one very cool part here that tells us that the votes happened in a place uh, uh, owned by a, place, a man named Hananiah ben Hizkiah. And he was a great guy. What did he do? Uh, in his attic, he, t he once saved the book of Ezekiel. The sages wanted to exclude the prophetic book of Ezekiel from the canon. Um, and he took 300 barrels of oil, that is to say a lot of lamplight, up to his attic, and he explained all the many contradictions. The, the prophet Ezekiel, fascinating and often beautiful Bible book, um, the... The second half of the book is dedicated to a description of the temple, which very often contradicts the Torah itself. Uh, and Ezekiel has a number of things which would seem to be problematic for the Torah. For example, in chapter 45, Ezekiel explains uh, sacrifices that will be offered on Rosh Chodesh and on Passover that are not mentioned in the Torah. Ezekiel seems to think that only the, the priests are obliged to keep kashrut, well, that's not how it came out, folks. Uh, Ezekiel denies the Torah, explicitly denies that the Torah's claim that, that God is that God visits the iniquities of the parents upon the descendants. And all these things, as you can imagine, uh, were very problematic for rabbinic Judaism. So, according to this passage in the Talmud, the idea was that Ezekiel was going to be excluded. But our hero, Hananiah ben Chizkiah Garon, he explained those contradictions. That's something that the Talmud will take again up uh, in the tractate Minachot, where it says that only Elijah will really give satisfactory answers. Thanks for learning with me. See you tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One B, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.